0: This is Kara Oakleaf, director of Fall for the Book, a literary arts nonprofit based here at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. For information on our programs, including the 21st annual Fall for the Book Festival this October, visit our website, fallforthebook.org. We're pleased to be hosting this episode of Mason Out Loud, and I'm really looking forward to talking with our guest today, Jamel Brinkley. Jamel Brinkley is the author of A Lucky Man, a finalist for the National Book Award in Fiction, the Story Prize, the John Leonard Prize, and the Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize, and winner of the Ernest J. Gaines Award for Literary Excellence. His writing has appeared in The Best American Short Stories 2018, Plowshares, Gulf Coast, The Three Penny Review, Glimmer Train, American Short Fiction, and Tin House, among other places. He has received support from Kimbillia fiction, the Callaloo Creative Writing Workshop, the Napa Valley Writers' Conference, the Tin House Summer Workshop, and the Bread Loaf Writers' Conference. A graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, he was also a Carol Hauk-Smith Fiction fellow at the Wisconsin Institute for Creative Writing, he is currently a Wallace Stegner Fellow in Fiction at Stanford University. Jamel, welcome and thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us today.
1: Hi, Kara. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah,
0: I know you had done some work in a PhD program before getting your MFA, and I'm, I'm curious what that was experience was like, and when you realized you wanted to switch gears and really focus on your own writing.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. So yeah, I, I did a PhD program at Columbia, which I did not complete, and. I think I never really quite knew what I was getting into when I started the PhD program. I went directly after college. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, getting a PhD in English and comparative literature was like a continuation of being an English major. Um, which is definitely not true. (laughs) Um, So I I think when I first got to to graduate school, I was sort of shocked by how the level of discourse changed. It became more highly theoretical. Um, It started to feel to me like we weren't necessarily talking about the books. We were sort of talking about the theoretical lenses Hmm. that we would apply to the books. Yeah. And some of that was interesting to me. But I guess to answer your question, I I feel like the more I felt like I had to write in that theoretical language, the more disillusioned I got with with the program. And so by the time I got to the dissertation stage where there was no more coursework and it was just me Mm -hmm. having to write a whole book in in sort of like academic language, that's when I rebelled and wrote a (laughs) novel instead. No no one will ever see that novel, it's in a drawer, but I didn't write my dissertation, I wrote a novel.
0: Okay, cool. (laughs) Um, I, I remember having kind of a similar experience when I started my program, I wanted to do a master's in English instead. And I realized what theory was actually gonna be like when you started talking about it. I was interested in theory as an undergrad because it was like, here's all these different ways to explore something. But then you get to graduate school and it's like, okay, pick one. Right. And that's it. And it just felt so strange to be looking at every book you were reading and from that way. It it felt so limiting. Um, Yeah. 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 Um, So an MFA was obviously really a different experience. Yes,
1: yeah, much more what I wanted to be doing. Good, good.
0: I want to ask a couple questions about the the story collection. There's a really strong sense of place in all the stories in A Lucky Man, Mm -hmm. and uh, most of those are set in Brooklyn or the Bronx. Um, You did a lot of the writing of, of this while you were in Iowa. And I wonder what it was like writing stories where New York is a place feels so essential while you were in this really, really different atmosphere.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, the collection has nine stories. Seven of them were written in Iowa. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Iowa is a very different place than New York. Um, I think, though, that even when I was writing in New York, I was kind of writing about a New York that no longer existed. Um, A New York that sort of only existed in my mind or in my memory or in my, you know, internal world of affection. Um, So... While I was concerned when I moved to Iowa that maybe I would be away from the place and the rhythms and, and the energy that, that would feed my stories, what I found was that um, actually that, that place was, was sort of an internal landscape. You know, it was something that I had internalized. And I think the New York I'm writing about, hopefully it reflects the real New York in some ways, but it's really, it's really a personal New York. It's really my sort of version of it. So I don't think it really was a problem, okay. you know.
0: There's at least one story in the collection that's specifically set like in 1996. Right. So you're writing that story yeah. from a lot of distance, where no matter where you were. Right. Yeah,
1: exactly. And then there's also that thing about, you know, and a lot of writers ov- over time have sort of referred to this, but, you know, the, the clarity that comes with distance, mm-hmm. you know. So I think some of that effect was, was there as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: I know when you were working on these stories, you were... Kind of, You've talked about how you've kind of seen them as just individual stories you were working on. And uh, when did you really start thinking about them in terms of a collection?
1: I didn't start thinking about them as a collection until my literary agent told me that I had a collection. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had been sending her one story at a time um, as I sort of worked through the drafts and revised them to my personal satisfaction and she would try to send them out individually to literary magazines. But after she had accumulated enough of them, she called me up one day and said, okay, you have a book. And that was a surprise to me. Um, and from that point on, you know, one of the first things she said after we had that initial conversation, that decisive conversation to, to try to send this to editors as a book, um, she said, okay, well, this will probably change down the line, but you have to think about what order we want to put these in when we're sending them to publishers. Mm -hmm. So she had me put together an order, and she put together an order on her own, and we talked about our lists and why we ordered them that way. Um, There were also certain stories that I had written that fell out of the collection because they didn't quite fit with what the others were doing. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was really at that point Um, that I began to think about it and that continued into my editorial process with Grey Wolf. And I have to say, that was a lot of fun for me. Yeah, it actually was a lot of fun to to think about how these pieces that I've been really sort of, you know, that were kind of silos in my mind, um, how they could fit together and and speak to each other and how you can make little adjustments in scenes or in sentences to to sort of draw out these conversations that could happen between stories.
0: That was probably an interesting experience to like put your own list together and then see your agent putting her own list together and see like where yeah. the differences were and what different things you guys were seeing
1: yeah it really was um, and to see what where people put the priority like do you want to you know start in a certain way or are you putting more emphasis on the last story and you know do do you want to sort of lead with the voice here kind of first person stories or do you want to sort of start off with a different kind of trajectory in mind. So all those questions, which I never, ever, ever thought about, you know, I was suddenly faced with. And it was it was fun to think about them and decide what was important to me.
0: Yeah, Yeah. Uh, cool. How do you normally handle structuring a a longer short story? Because most of the stories in the collection are, are pretty long.
1: They are. Yeah. Um, I used to feel bad about that. Because, <laughs> you know, there, there are certain orthodoxies that can set in during workshops where, where people mm. will, will try to get you to trim the thing down or to sort of fit the definition of what they think a true short story is. Yeah. But I'm glad that there are folks like Alice Munro out there and Edward P. Jones, Deborah Eisenberg, who sort of write these like sprawling yeah, yeah. stories um, that, that can act as models. So for me, I guess, um, even though maybe the rhythms of my my stories are like lean more towards the novelistic. I think there's still story rhythms, but you know, Mm -hmm. if there's a spectrum, I think it's leaning more than other stories do towards novel rhythms. I think there's, I think the structuring principles are, are largely the same, but I allow myself the space to wander a little bit or the the space to, um, digress or the space to sort of focus on what's ultimately a minor character. Um, Mm And in that sense, if you're going to do that, then I think your structure has to be pretty strong to contain that. Mm-hmm. But I just sort of allow myself to to go places where where a tighter story just wouldn't go. Yeah,
0: yeah. it's an interesting balance because it's all the stories are kind of there. There's something that you can really, I think. I think you've used the phrase like hold it in your head yeah. at once, but they also feel so layered and so complex because yeah. you do have the room to do that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: How do you normally go about revision? I've heard that you've tried this process where you revise with like one particular element that you revise per draft, Mm -hmm. and that sounds pretty extensive Mm -hmm. in some ways. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. In fact, you know, I I think your last two questions might be related. Mm -hmm. I I heard um, Deborah Eisenberg speak recently, and she said that she doesn't really think that much about like story arcs. With her mm-hmm. stories, I like guess not super important to her, and that she's more interested in layering. That may not have been her word, but something along the lines of, of the layers. Like that's that's how she thinks of her story structures. And so I think maybe, maybe the way I revise is related to the structure of my stories. In that, I, I do do this kind of version of of a revision process that I got from Robert Boswell, um, where I do revise one element at a time. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, so I'll have a dialogue draft and then, you know, a setting, draft, you know, that kind of thing. And I think if you pay that, that kind of close attention to each element of your story, each one of those elements feels like it has more interior, it becomes firmer. You know, it, it feels like you know it can sort of stand on its own. And once you have all these solid things um, put together, then that can stand in for a typical story structure. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's something about the the level of focus that I try to give each element of my stories that I hope can can make the story withstand. You know, the the pressures of reading make make to make it feel like it has a structure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. How many drafts does that usually mean you're doing on on your short stories?
1: Oh man, I mean it varies. Um, Boswell's version, I think, is, is definitely more. It's like the real thing because he has an essay about it and he talks about like draft ninety four, you know, oh <laughs> the story. And I don't get to that point. Although maybe I did when I was after revising with <laughs> Gray Wolf. Um, but you know, I'm I'm doing like I'm doing like a dozen or more. Drafts, probably. Okay. Maybe yeah. between a dozen and 20, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. It's
0: a good thing for students to hear. Yeah. Especially students starting out who think there's like one revision.
1: And oh, yeah. No, no forget that. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely more than that. Yeah. And sometimes it's more than that range I've given you. Sometimes it'll take a really long time for me to get yeah. a story right.
0: Do you think much about your audience when you're in the process of writing? I know you've talked about black writers being able to think of their audience as black readers or readers of color, Mm -hmm. Um, and I wondered if you could say a few things about the importance of that, Mm -hmm. Um, especially in terms of when you're going through a workshop where the conversation revolves around the idea of the reader and there's very often, I think in workshops, this incorrect assumption that whoever the reader is, it's a white reader and what they're going to know and bring to the story.
1: Yeah, um, that presumed whiteness, like anytime you have an unmarked category of person, there's this assumption that, that, that they're white, right? So I guess I would, I would say that I think the context um, is important in thinking about audience. So when I'm sitting down to, to write a story I'm the audience. Like I'm trying to have it make sense to me. And sometimes that just means, you know, getting enough clarity to figure out what the story is. Sometimes it just means pleasing myself, you know, in terms of, you know, a sentence rhythm or a certain kind of music or a joke or something that I'll put into a story. And so I'm, I think I'm my audience until I get the first sort of sturdy draft of a story mm-hmm. down. At that point, I think I have to s- start thinking about the fact that I want other people to read this. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so some of the things that might reflect me in a good way will remain, but sometimes some of the things that reflect me in kind of like a very private, private kind of writing, like mm-hmm. sort of way, I'll be like, hmm, I don't know about that, you know, cause that's just, okay. you know, like no one is, that's not gonna communicate to anyone. In a workshop setting, I think it's especially important to, to think about, think carefully about this question of audience, because, you know, I've seen so many times that people will question something in a story because they assume that they need to be pandered to in a Mm -hmm. way that they don't have to work to, to yeah. sort of meet the story. yeah, um, And that I think comes partially out of uh, out of certain assumptions about audience and who the audience should be mm-hmm. and what you have to do for the audience, yeah. right? So if we if we assume that the writers are, are writing to an audience that may not be you, <laughs> yeah. right? Then I think you can have different and more fruitful conversations in a workshop setting. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: I, I don't remember who who I saw this from, but there was a conversation recently on Twitter, you know, essentially telling writers like you don't have to explain yourself in yeah. a story. Like your right. readers are able to do that work.
1: Yeah, um, yeah.
0: So I think that's a that's a good thing for for people to be thinking about yes, when they're going absolutely. into a workshop. Like, mm-hmm. what is it that you're missing? And is it something you can find
1: out right on
0: yeah. your own? Because exactly. you probably can.
1: You probably can. Yeah, yeah. it's very easy these days. Yes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good.
0: You've talked a little bit about how when you're writing a, a short story, the focus is really on like the characters and the action of the story. But once you know you put this together as a collection and it starts getting reviewed, you're seeing a lot of discussions about the broader themes of of those stories and how they fit together. A lot of the reviews of of A Lucky Man talk about black manhood, masculinity masculinity. masculinity, New York as a setting, and different ideas of intimacy. Mm -hmm. Did you start seeing these yourself as you were putting the collection together? Or have any of the the reactions or things people take away from the book, has any of that surprised you?
1: I I think I'm surprised and not surprised. I guess what I'm discovering is that every book kind of gets reduced. In a way, when it comes out and it starts getting reviewed and it becomes part of a public discourse, you know you want to be able to say what this is, what this object is and so and a lot of books emerge you know into a specific cultural context and a Conversation is mm-hmm. already going on, and so your book will get swept up into that conversation. And all of a sudden, become a part of that conversation.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Right. So if there's a conversation going on about toxic masculinity, right, then sure. then a book yeah. like mine, you know, will 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 be about masculinity. Oh, that
0: makes sense. I hadn't thought about yeah. the, the the timing. The of, timing. Of that. Yeah, w- which is, yeah. which is
1: completely unintentional. Mm-hmm. You know. So of course, I mean, there are features of my book that that undoubtedly make it a book about masculinity, right? The fact that every book has a male protagonist, <laughs> but you know, if if your book, the timing of when your book comes out can do quite a lot to how it's discussed. And so I think that upon reflection, I'm not surprised, but I think going through it, I was surprised to see a lot of the same conversations and, and questions being asked. I was actually happy when, when Intimacy started showing up because it wasn't there initially. So. That became sort of a, that was like a delayed conversation in the book. And I was like, yes, yes. Intimacy. Let's talk about that or let's talk about privacy, you know, (laughs) you know, another way that people have, have talked about the collection, I guess, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like, I feel like it's really, I guess what I'm saying is that there's a way in which once your book comes out, it's not yours anymore.
0: Okay. Yeah. You yeah. know, it, it becomes um, it belongs to whoever's reading it.
1: At yeah. The, at that moment. And there, I have the urge to make certain claims on it. I'm like, yes, it's about that, but it's about all these other things too. But mm-hmm. that's sort of me trying to exert control over the book again, yeah. and it's 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 not really mine anymore. So I'm happy to have conversations and just try to steer conversations about the book in different directions. But on some level, I have to say, okay, well, this is this is what. The book is to people right now.
0: You mentioned like intimacy and privacy. Are there other things that you see in the collection that you feel like get get missed in the conversations about it?
1: One of the one of the blurbs on the collection that I like says that it's really a a series of love stories. Mm -hmm. And when I saw that, I kind of you know I kind of did a double take. But then I was like, no, that's right um their love stories and not always in the conventional sense like some of them are in like the romantic sort of heterosexual romantic way um but a lot of them are not but they're still love stories and so i kind of wish that um there'll be more conversation around that like the love that you have for your brother or the love that you have for your friend and that these kinds of loves can be the love of your life
0: yeah, you know? yeah.
1: So you know, that's that's a way of talking about the book that I think would be interesting and exciting and I wish I saw more of. Yeah.
0: Because the relationships in each of those individual stories do feel so complex and, mm. and, and so layered yeah. in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah. So thinking of them as, as love stories does, does make a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: One of the things that, that I noticed a lot when I was reading the collection is there are these really, really powerful moments of intimacy in a lot of them, and sometimes they're they come about in a way that's very unexpected or they happen in a way that, you know, puts the characters in a really vulnerable position. Um, and I wondered how you go about creating those those particular moments. I, I imagine it's different for every story because yeah. it, it is different in a lot of the stories. But
1: yeah, well, one of the ways I think about stories and revising stories is I think about the ways that that we protect characters or that characters are trying to protect themselves, guard themselves, Mm -hmm. shield themselves, armor themselves. And I think about how a story can like strip those down, you know, and of course, people and characters need to protect themselves, right? We need to protect ourselves from all the things that would harm us. But a lot of times in that armoring of self, you're, you're, you sort of unintentionally ward off being mm-hmm. open or being vulnerable in certain yeah. ways. And I'm interested in, in those moments. So I think what I try to do is is to sort of have the stories apply enough pressures to the character that they see the kind of openness and intimacy that that they may have been kind of warding off. Mm-hmm. And that involves just sort of like pressing characters closer together than they maybe want to be, yeah. crowding the characters. Um, really just sort of restricting or constricting space you know often these moments come through moments of of touch like unexpected moments of touch yeah and so that's also a great a great way Mm -hmm. so yeah really i'm trying to get at this thing that that we all need to do protecting ourselves but that has unintended consequences for our emotional lives
0: yeah yeah one of the most powerful moments in the collection comes in that in that first story where you get to the end and you see the narrator and, and his friend Claudius yeah. in this really intimate situation that feels so unsettling for them. Yeah. And it's 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 really effective and a really powerful moment. And then you have these other moments like I'm thinking about like Ellis and Sadie in the last story where there's this discomfort about how Sadie's seeing him. But right. the ending ends up being just this really gorgeous moment, too, oh, I thought. You. So there was, there was such an interesting range in seeing how, how you wrote about all of
1: these things. Yeah, thank you.
0: One more question for you. What have you been working on? You're in the Wallace Stegner Fellowship right now, so you yes. have a little bit of time to to focus on the next project.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, thanks for asking. Right now, I'm working on news stories. So I'm sort of in the early stages of three news stories. Um, and that's been my main focus, um, because the rhythms of my life right now, with all the travel that I've been doing, allow me to to work in the smaller space of a story, mm-hmm. rather than something like a novel, for instance. So yeah, I'm working on new stories. Um, I hope to get a novel going before I'm done with the fellowship. But uh, I hope to always be writing stories, as long as I'm writing. Okay. Good.
0: Uh, well, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, um, and we appreciate you taking some time for us today. Thank you. For more information on the Fall for the Book Festival, please visit fallforthebook.org. You can find other episodes of Mason Out Loud on SoundCloud and iTunes and rate and review us there.